0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi,
1: I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today we're talking about Alexis de Tocqueville, 19th century French liberal theorist, author of Democracy in America and Ancient Regime and the Revolution. I've given Edmund some time to look over those primary texts. Edmund, what stood out to you? So
1: with these primary texts, it seems we have something of a trilogy with uh, Tocqueville's Democracy in America coming in two volumes. Uh, followed by uh, The Ancien Regime. And Democracy in America, Volume 1, which came out in the 1830s, uh, is a book that has been much quoted from and you'd think much read. Uh, But I think still, uh, at least sometimes, the basic idea in the text is lost uh, which is that for Tocqueville the primary driving force of democracy and therefore somehow by implication its value is not primarily liberty that is part of democracy but what Tocqueville calls equality of conditions. Uh, Tocqueville contrasts democracy understandably with its uh, one of its predecessors, aristocracy, uh, where he describes a condition of, say, in France, 700 years ago, quote, when the territory was divided amongst a small number of families who were the owners of the soil and the rulers of the inhabitants, the right of governing descended with the family inheritance from generation to generation. Force was the only means by which man could act on man, and landed property was the sole source of power. Soon, however, the political power of the clergy was founded and began to exert itself. The clergy opened its ranks to all classes to the poor and the rich, the villain and the lord, equality penetrated into the government through the church, and the being who as a serf must have vegetated in perpetual bondage took his place as a priest in the midst of nobles and not infrequently above the heads of kings. And a further cause of the drive to quality, Tocqueville notes is uh, is money. quote whilst the kings were ruining themselves by their great enterprises and the nobles exhausting their resources by private law wars, the lower orders were enriching themselves by commerce. The influence of money began to be perceptible in state affairs. In the eleventh century, nobility was beyond, or price. In the 13th it might be purchased. It was conferred for the first time in 1270, and equality was thus introduced into government by the aristocracy itself. So much for the drive for equality in Europe. But for Tocqueville, the drive for equality is even more powerful in America, because while there is a semblance, Tocqueville argues, of aristocracy in America, the aristocracy was largely created from the conditions in which people leaving Europe to America found themselves. Uh, He describes on the one hand a a class of farmers and uh, seekers of gold who uh, uh, he claims uh, founded the state of Virginia, the colony of Virginia I should say, in 1607. With, on the other hand, the professionals and merchants who formed the New English colonies in the north. And so in this situation, Tocqueville frames the, that the South is characterized by a kind of nascent aristocracy that grew up around the institution of slavery. But not the kind of aristocracy that you would necessarily find in Europe, and this for Tocqueville made it easier for the drive for equality to penetrate its way through the American colonies and then through the United States of America.
0: And, and uh, to clarify, Edmund, what's mm-hmm. the difference between this kind of notion of nascent American aristocracy and old European aristocracies?
1: Oh, well the old European aristocracies had existed for hundreds of years based on the labor of peasants, whereas the nascent American aristocracy grew up uh, around agriculture and farming in the American uh, colonies, but not based on uh, the labor of peasants because this was a whole new economic system. And so in this sense, slaves replaced
0: peasants as the economic basis for uh American feudalism. But then also politically, European aristocracies are inherited. They're based on a political status, the nobility, mm. which in America you don't have, right? So mm. in America you have landowners, you have some very large, very powerful landowners, so they are parallel to European aristocrats in the sense that they also own land, their power base is also agricultural, right? But they don't have nobility. So they don't have any superior political status that is heritable. They're not in a separate class. Mm. So when we say nascent aristocrats, we don't really mean aristocrats in the sense of a specific political class with rights and privileges associated with that class. What we mean are people who own a lot of land Mm. and use that land for agriculture.
1: Yes, it, it is perhaps anachronistic of me to use the term aristocracy here. Um, I can't remember if uh, Tocqueville uses the term. It's perhaps possible that he doesn't. Um, he, he does compare the two. Um, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that uh, for Tocqueville, the, the, the drive for equality it, it does come uh, more naturally for uh American democracy than the European states but it nevertheless took time Um, though at the same time Tocqueville wants to say that the people uh, setting up shop in the Americas are immediately driven by a drive for equality and are leaving Europe in some ways out of revulsion for European inequality. Um, So I I think that Tocqueville both wants to say that equality is there right at the beginning, but also that it takes time to get institutionalized. And Tocqueville wants to. Well, the US Constitution
0: expressly, the the Constitution itself expressly forbids Americans from claiming European titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you come to the United States from Europe, even if you end up being someone who owns a lot of land, or has a lot of money, you can't have a title and you don't get any political privileges on the basis of being from a noble class. There's no concept of nobility in the United States to start with, right? So when you come to the United States, you're not a noble. You can't be a noble. You can accumulate a lot of wealth. You can accumulate a lot of land, a lot of money, but you can't turn that into a superior political status in the european sense of that term where a political status gives you certain rights and privileges which a person who lacks that status doesn't have and in old european societies it was all about political status either you were a noble or you weren't either you possessed roman citizenship or you didn't either you were a slave or a serf or you were not and these different Classes gave you different rights, specifically. So when we're talking about equality in a Tocquevillian sense, we're not talking about a society in which, strictly speaking, everybody has the same income or everybody has the same amount of wealth. We're talking about equality in the sense that these class-based political status distinctions don't exist in the United States. Hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. So class kind of persists as an economic category, even if it's formally abolished politically. But I think Tocqueville also wants to say that it is, at least he wants to say in Democracy in America, Volume One, that is is in the process of being abolished economically too, at least in the sense that commerce uh, undermines the basis of the aristocracy, and he wants to say that even. The kind of quasi aristocracy in the American South, uh, and he he does actually I think use the term uh, a- a- aristocracy in uh, chapter eighteen of um, uh, volume one of Democracy in America, uh, where he argues that uh, yeah as the as these truths became apparent in the United States, slavery receded before the progress of experience. Servitude had begun in the South and thence uh, spread towards the North, but now it retires again. Freedom, which started from the North, now de- descends uninterruptedly towards the South. Where, Tocqueville says, there existed a, quote, aristocracy which contained many who were poor, but none who would work. Its members preferred uh, want to labor. And Tocqueville goes on to argue that over time, as uh, the kind of uh, as the as the fortunes of this quasi aristocracy diminished, and as the laws against primogeniture, rights of inheritance by the firstborn, were kind of reemphasized, that uh, quote the prejudice which stigmatized labor was in the first place abandoned by common consent. The number of needy men was increased, and the needy were allowed to gain a laborious subsistence without blushing for their exertions. Thus, one of the most immediate consequences of the partible quality of estates has been to create a class of free laborers. As soon as a competition was set on foot between the free laborer and the slave, the inferiority of the latter became manifest. The slavery was attacked in its fundamental principle, which is the interest of the master. So, I think Tocqueville wants to say that. There did exist a kind of almost a quasi manufactured feudal system in the United States due to the relationship between uh, landowners and slaves. But over time, as industry and trade developed, uh, particularly from the north, this became uh, economically uncompetitive, leading to. I mean, he's he's writing this in the uh, uh, 1830s, but he does predict that slavery will uh, be abolished due to its becoming economically inefficient as well as morally condemnable.
0: Yeah. So when we talk about Tocqueville, I think uh, one of the things that's important to emphasize is that Tocqueville is French. And so he is coming to the United States from the perspective of post-revolutionary France in which post-revolutionary France is going through a period of introspection, right? The revolution happens, Napoleon happens, the Napoleonic Wars end in France's defeat. The revolution ended in first Napoleon becoming emperor and then the restoration of the monarchy. So there, there was a series of disasters in France. And the French political class is trying to think about how can France have a stable state that is not anarchic and also that is not tyrannical. And in Ancient Regime and the Revolution, Tocqueville makes the case that in the effort to abolish the Ancient Regime. So many of the mediating institutions in France, which formerly connected French subjects to the central authority, were destroyed, and this produced a lack of stability, which eventually caused the French to seek a tyrant, a despot, to fill in this gap of not feeling sufficiently socially embedded if you get rid of the church you get rid of the nobility you get rid of the mediating classes at that point there is nothing left for the ordinary person to identify with apart from the central state itself and so the rise of bonaparte enables the ordinary french person to feel straightforwardly connected to politics without the presence of a nobility or a priesthood now once you restore the despot eventually the despot becomes too heavy too weighty too tyrannical that becomes too much and so that then inspires another drive for equality which again results in a period of anarchy right in france the effort to create equality results in anarchy And that anarchy produces despotism. The despotism then produces another drive to generate equality, which ends in anarchy, which then produces despotism. So France is is becoming caught in this cycle of oscillating between anarchy and despotism. It's never able to find a replacement for the mediating role that the nobles and the priests played in the ancient regime. Now, Tocqueville himself does not want to return to the ancient regime. He is quite aware that the ancient regime totally failed to create any kind of liberty or any kind of equality. And to a significant degree, Tocqueville views liberty and equality as desirable. He is a liberal, right? But Tocqueville recognizes that the revolution also was unable to secure liberty and equality in any kind of sustainable way because the revolution produced this period of terrible anarchy and the terror, and that drove people back into the arms of of despotism, right? So Tocqueville is looking for some kind of institutional schema that can avoid the excesses of anarchy and the excesses of despotism. He is not convinced that England itself can do this. He looks at the British model as... Uh, a bit of a sloppy mix of different things. He is more inspired by the American model, at least initially. And the thing that sticks out to Tocqueville about the American model uh, is the degree to which the central government in the United States does not have much of a presence in ordinary American towns and communities. And this is because in ordinary American towns and communities, you have a lot of local government, you have a lot of civil society organizations. These civil society organizations, this local government, it allows people to participate directly in politics in a way that feels significant and meaningful because the decisions that they make locally in these clubs and in local government have a direct effect on their, on their lives. And there isn't much of a heavy hand coming from even the state governments let alone the federal government to intervene in the local politics of these communities so these people feel that the government is answerable to them because the the political action that they're engaged in straightforwardly affects their lives now The role that these local institutions play of getting people involved in politics in a way that makes them feel actualized by that, that role is fragile because in the American case, it is not something that's been instantiated by the central authority. To a large degree, the autonomy of the localities in the United States is due to America's size, Due to the incompleteness of its government, the fact that its government has not fully developed. And so it's a bit of a happy accident that the United States has this much local autonomy. Tocqueville also argues that the good behavior of the localities is in large part driven by what he calls mores, right? The kind of moral norms which he says come from religion and from traditions which predate American democracy. And which, since they, again, have not been instantiated by the government, are vulnerable to being disrupted, eroded, or, or changed. So a lot of conservatives in the United States like Tocqueville because Tocqueville emphasizes certain, the value of certain aspects of the United States which are not deliberately produced by the federal government or by the Constitution or even by the state governments that are things that are kind of accidents of, of the scale of the United States and of the fact that it, its population comes from lots of different places where lots of different traditions and religions are dominant. So it's difficult to say how the United States could be a model for France insofar as a lot of what Tocqueville likes about the United States is a happy accident. And in the French case, it, it would be difficult to install Local institutions in a deliberate way that would perform the kind of role which American local institutions perform. Part of why those institutions work is that they were not installed by the central government. They just kind of grew up out of necessity. So on the one hand, Tocqueville is kind of excited by the United States. On the other hand, it also doesn't very neatly provide a straightforward solution for what to do in France. And throughout Tocqueville's life, he tries to get involved in French politics, he tries to contribute, and he never gets very far. To a large degree, the French view him as a bit of an Anglophile, as someone who admires British and American institutions, or potentially admires British and American institutions, and therefore someone who can't really be trusted, doesn't really understand the revolution or its values, doesn't really... uh, uh, and at the same time, is not a reliable defender of the monarchy or the ancient regime. So you, you can't find a lot of a very large section of French society that likes Tocqueville. And this continued lack of influence in France has hounded Tocqueville even after his death. He is a much more popular figure in American political theory, uh, even in German political theory than he is among the French. And I think this speaks to the fact that a lot of what Tocqueville saw in the United States was not something that could be straightforwardly applied to France. Hmm. Would you agree with that, Edmund? I I, 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 I do.
1: Yeah, because as well as the point about municipality being a restraint on the excesses of democracy, I mean, anticipating his worries in Volume Two of Democracy in America about, uh, and indeed, ancien régime, la révolution. In Volume One of Democracy in America, um, you know, Tocqueville suggests that ma- kind of that the majority is constrained both by. Uh, municipalities and by the judiciary, which acts as a kind of mediator between the more um, populist tendencies of the legislature and the more monarchical tendencies of the executive. Um, And so, in a sense, the judiciary acts, and uh, Tocqueville says this, as a kind of uh, aristocracy. He says, quote, the profession of the law is the only aristocratic element which can be amalgamated without violence with the natural elements of democracy and which can be advantageously and permanently combined with them. It's interesting he says this because in the run-up to the French Revolution, one of the key institutions to do with making... Judicial rulings, uh, uh, as well as aiding local tax collection with a parlement. And these institutions weren't, because they weren't effective enough, uh, you know, needed to be supplemented with the Estates General uh, and the contest over uh, taxation to finance the debt in the run up to the uh, French Revolution. Uh, the kind of contest between the arist- the aristocracy, and the uh, uh, and the Third Estate, um, but it's interesting that I think Tocqueville does see the differences between the two uh, uh, systems, and but as well as seeing the similarities. And I, I wonder if one similarity is that Tocqueville increasingly seems to become worried that America will. In some way go in france's uh direction in swinging uh between as you say despotism and uh, and democracy uh i think in in volume two of Democracy in America published in uh eighteen forty five years after uh, volume one uh Tocqueville does uh, become increasingly worried that Democracy has a tendency towards despotism, towards as people might say nowadays a tyranny of the majority, uh, which an idea which is often tr- traced back to Tocqueville. And it seems that the remedy for this you'd think would be in Volume one, um, but Tocqueville seems to be in, in, in some way less impressed by his earlier solution. He seems to think he Made a mistake in emphasizing equality so much and rebalances with the idea of liberty. But then in the Ancien regime, Tocqueville finds a synthesis between these positions, which is that these things can't really be easily synthesized and that this swinging between a kind of uh, the push, the liberal push towards liberty uh, on the one hand and the push towards quality, on the other hand, can't be easily uh, reconciled.
0: Um, yeah. yeah. Well, this is because in Volume 1, a lot of what he finds praiseworthy about America is a happy accident. It's the stuff that happens because America's big and because its state hasn't consolidated authority. So what he identifies as good about the United States in Volume One isn't really a solution because a solution is something that you do, right? It's how you solve a problem. Mm. In the case of the United States, what was good about it for Tocqueville was not something that the United States did to solve its problem. It was something that just kind of happened in the United States as a consequence of the scale of it and as a consequence of the fact that it was a new country with people who had moved there who had no noble titles. So it doesn't have any ossified central structures that need to be cleaned out. Instead, what it has is a lot of new territory sparsely populated with central authority insufficiently established. And so because of that, these people who are moving out to the frontier, they're carrying with them their religious traditions and mores. They're forming local governments, local administrations, because there's nothing else for them to do. There's no other way of establishing order apart from doing that. The state governments, the federal government, have not yet extended their power to the point where they can really govern all of these little communities that are being founded. In the first half of the 19th century, especially in the United States. So, to a very large degree, what makes the United States so dynamic and so interesting is a temporary condition, which is a a consequence of it being a frontier state. So, you can't just instate that as a solution. And indeed, as the central government's capacity grows, that space will tend to dry up. So one of the things Tocqueville is worried about is that gradually over time, the influence of these local governments will decrease as the state and the federal government become more important, and that the civil society organizations people join in their local communities, those will dry up. Now, why does it happen that these things dry up? Well, as you expand the power of the federal state and the state governments, it becomes less clear that what you're doing locally matters. And I think this is something you can really see in the United States today. A lot of cities and towns don't have a lot of policy autonomy in the United States because the state governments are increasingly preempting powers away from the towns. And of course, the federal government, has grown enormously over the last 150 years, and it has taken on a lot of roles which formerly might have belonged to the states. So Hmm. the states are going after their localities, and the feds are going after the states. And so if you live in an American town these days, for one, the population of the towns is much larger. So whatever it is that you do, it's a much smaller percentage of the overall political activity occurring in your local area. But secondly, and I think more fundamentally, because of all of the preemptions and because so much policy is being done at the federal and state levels, there isn't a whole lot you can do that really feels important. And it's interesting how there's been a bit of a revival recently in school board politics because the school board, the local school board in the United States, has become a site of potential resistance to coronavirus policy. And it's probably the only place where ordinary people can do anything political about coronavirus. For the most part, coronavirus policies are coming from companies rather than from the federal government. Uh, And oftentimes governors are avoiding telling their local school districts what they have to do as a way of avoiding taking blame from either uh, people who want tougher restrictions or people who want looser restrictions. So the governors are divesting responsibility for coronavirus by kicking it to the school boards, and that leads to a lot of of real nasty fighting in the school board meetings. Now, one of the things Tocqueville emphasizes is that this local government works great because of mores, because when people participate in local government, they're motivated to behave themselves because they have come to America with deeply held religious beliefs which forced them to be civil to each other. And then by participating in these local institutions, those civil instincts are nurtured and grow and develop. Right. But now when people go and participate in the school board meetings, it's a terrible mess. Everybody is horrifically mean to everybody else to the point where the people running the school boards are begging the state governors to send them police and, and, uh, national uh, state, state Guard troopers and all kinds of, of coercive instruments so that they can have these meetings without people rudely interrupting and, and without things collapsing. In my own hometown of Valparaiso, there was a school board meeting that was stormed by protesters, right? So the remaining local institutions that do seem to matter, people don't behave the way that Tocqueville hoped they would behave. And outside of that, political participation in local politics is collapsing. A lot of local newspapers are shutting down. It's very difficult to get people to vote in local elections. Oftentimes, the United States local cities and towns are putting their elections in odd-numbered years to further depress turnout and interest. And with less and less news coverage of local affairs, it's very hard for people to even know what's happening. Most of the time, if you read a local American newspaper, they'll tell you about how the various sports teams are doing and nice things that different charitable groups in town are doing. And it's very difficult to find out what is actually happening from a business standpoint in the community, what is actually happening politically. Most of the coverage that you will see is puff pieces made to make various people look good. So, and a lot of these local newspapers are owned by national conglomerates that have particular goals in how they want to influence local politics in the country. So it's very difficult to have this kind of autonomous, small-scale thing that Tocqueville was talking about. And so if you look at American history and you're looking for what is the stuff that Tocqueville loved about the country, you really have to go very far back. And by the end of Tocqueville's life, he was already worried that what he saw when he first came was going away. So I think that for that reason, Tocqueville is often positioned as some kind of of, um, praiser of the United States. And part of the reason Americans like him is that he's a European, a Frenchman who comes to the United States and appreciates it from a European point of view. But to a very large degree, the things he liked about the country were accidents, not things we deliberately did. And in his own view, those things were highly fragile to, to drying up and going away. And I think you could certainly argue that by this point, the country does not look remotely like what Tocqueville described. Now, what I think does uh, is also interesting is that Tocqueville makes this argument about Equality eventually producing a tyranny of the majority. And the notion of tyranny of of the majority is linked to this idea that workers would kind of take over and dominate state institutions and that they would squelch space for individuality, that the workers would be uh, overly homogenizing. And so the equality of the United States which might enable the workers to take over and dominate the country, would become the enemy of its liberty and the individual, individuality that particular people and particular groups might otherwise exhibit. Now, that argument about uh, equality is, it, to a large degree, a concern that the workers will actually get economic equality out of the relative political equality of the United States. And that's why I I emphasize that when we're talking about equality as a positive trait in the United States for Tocqueville, we're mainly talking about just the fact that there isn't a landed aristocracy. Tocqueville was not someone who wanted to see strict economic equality come into existence in the United States. He was to some degree worried that The degree to which the United States was more economically equal than Europe might allow the working class to achieve a tyranny of the majority. A lot of the time nowadays when people invoke the phrase tyranny of the majority, they're not thinking about classes. They're not thinking about the working class as the, the majority class. When Tocqueville is thinking about this, he's coming at it from the European standpoint. And in the European standpoint, what divides people? is principally class distinction. So insofar as America's equal, it's because it doesn't have that class distinction. And so insofar as you have to worry about tyranny of the majority, it's the tyranny of the large class, which is the working class. It's not a tyranny of people who have particular cultural or religious sensibilities of one kind or another. It's not a tyranny Mm. of Christians or a tyranny of liberals or something like that. It's an economic tyranny, specifically. So, to a large degree, as in contemporary American politics, we've gotten away from thinking about class altogether. We really make hardly any reference to it. We use the middle class as a signifier for almost everybody. Tyranny of the majority has become a culturally loaded concept, and it's moved into cultural debates about progressivism and and conservatism. But that's not really its original purpose and function, it's mainly to highlight the possibility of the workers dominating the state. And the argument from Mm. Tocqueville is that what is distinctive about individual behavior tends to come not from the working class, but from wealthier classes, that those are the classes where people are able to differentiate and become weird and eccentric and individual. Mm. But of course, if you make all of that explicit, the point about tyranny of the majority doesn't necessarily sound as nice and warm and fuzzy as it sounds when it's invoked more generally today. Yeah, and, and,
1: and this worry in, in Volume 2 uh, about e- excessive uh, equality leading a, to a kind of majority despotism, I think is to some degree anticipated by this comment in Volume 1 where uh, Tocqueville um, describes the kind of paradox of Equality and inequality and class conflict in democracies in the following way: Quote, the division of property has lessened the distance which separated the rich from the poor, but it would now it would seem that uh, the nearer they draw to each other, the greater is their mutual hatred and the more vehement the envy and the dread with which they resist each other's claims to power. The notion of right is alike insensible to both classes and force affords to both the only argument for the present and the only guarantee for the future. So it seems that Tocqueville does want to say that there is this drive towards greater equality, and I I think he does mean mainly political equality, as we were discussing earlier, but I think he's also trying to say that the problem with an aristocracy is also the social concentration of um, wealth into the hands of a minority, and he wants to say that commerce, uh, in the early nineteenth century, is distributing property in a more wide way. But this doesn't, for Tocqueville, get rid of class conflict because the drive for no, it equality, intensifies it. Yeah, intensifies
0: it. Yeah. So he's concerned about economic equality because economic equality for him leads to more intense class conflict. Political Mm. equality, he likes, but he worries that political equality will result in economic equality—a very common worry for nineteenth-century liberals.
1: Yeah, and he thinks—I mean, partly because he thinks that democracy helps to aid development of commerce, and therefore by undermining the kind of landed property of former times is spreading out property um, of kind of more liquid and financial and other varieties among people um,
0: in modern times. Um, I mean, he thinks these things go together. You can imagine how this critique would be directly picked up by post-war critics of The New Deal of social democracy, of democratic socialism, social liberalism, whatever you want to call it, the argument post-war that the suite of economic reforms which leveled economic inequality uh, in the wake of the world wars, which of course heavily disrupted capital, that all of that produced a stultifying conformity that when you had a society where There was a concerted effort to level economic inequality in the 50s and 60s that this produced uh, a very heavy-handed federal government, which gave very little space to individual creative expression, right? Now, that critique is one which the beat generation made and which the hippies made, and it was made simultaneously from both the left and the right in the post-war era. It sounds a lot like Tocqueville's critique. But of course, neither the conservatives or the hippies of the 50s and 60s would have made the connection that Tocqueville makes, I think, that giving political power to the workers is a problem insofar as it leads to this. And in the 19th century, that argument was straightforwardly made by liberals. The argument is dropped as it becomes politically untenable to make it in the late 19th and early 20th century. But you can still find a lot of instances in which people make this argument that government by workers is stultifying and conformist, or that government in which workers play a large role is stultifying and conformist. And you see it in the Democratic Party's eventual rejection of the trade unions On the grounds that the unions are holding back social progress, that the unions are too hawkish on foreign policy, too much supportive of the Vietnam War, the critique of the workers in the late 60s in the Democratic Party is that the workers are too conformist, are too reactionary on social and cultural issues, that they don't allow for enough distinction and individuation. And so you can see how a liberal progressive movement, which is interested in individuation and in different groups of people being able to live very differently from one another, might get into an antagonism with a worker movement where the cultural attitude is more homogenous. So there's a, a kind of a link there between an economic tyranny of the majority and a cultural tyranny of the majority. And so in the latter half of the 20th century, you have a Democratic Party, which wants to pursue a highly individualistic project in the cultural sphere, but also wants to remain connected to a working class coalition built during the 30s by FDR. That produced attention. And you have a... uh, Republican, you know, a Republican party, which in the latter half of the 20th century became interested in individuation, but also straightforwardly was, was hostile to the worker position. In a way, that position is, is more straightforwardly coherent and more resembles Tocqueville's position. The Democratic position of the last 25, 30 years, 40 years uh, is a little bit in Congress because it has uh, nominally an economic commitment to government by the workers, but also substantially uh, a commitment to individuation. Yeah. So you can see how this this interest in opposing conformity can be married to an opposition to worker politics, and so the hostility to conformity tends to also produce a willingness to support a more bourgeois government. And this is something that I think caused a lot of problems for Marxists of the post-war era who wanted to oppose this conformity and wanted to take advantage of the opposition to conformity, but also wanted to remain committed to worker movements. And so the result is that we have a little bit of attention.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay, so the, a little saying, bit of a digression from the main point, but
1: right. I, just to clarify, are you saying that the the cultural and economic critiques go against each other um, in that
0: way? Well, if you if you follow Tocqueville in arguing that. Individual differentiation, liberty, is threatened by a tyranny of the majority, that it's a tyranny of the majority in the sense of a working class dominated government. If you think that working class dominated government is inherently conformist, then if you buy that point, that would set up an antagonism whereby the cultural politics of the Democratic Party and the economic position of the Democratic Party don't fit neatly together. The Democratic Party is purporting to be interested in workers' economic interests. It's also purporting to be interested in preserving uh, and protecting and promoting difference. So if Tocqueville were right, then those two positions could not fit together neatly. Uh, And to some degree, hmm. to some degree, they're not fitting together neatly, as suggested by the way in which the fight over the Democratic Party was carried out in the late 60s and 70s, where there was a hostility on the part of the wealthier part of the party to the cultural values of the workers in the party who were pitched as troglodytes or uh, excessively conformist or insufficiently hostile to the post war suburban.
1: Compact.
0: Mm. Uh, What what would Tocqueville's reason
1: for the incompatibility be again between the critique of conformity and uh, social um, equality?
0: Well, because Tocqueville thinks that if you get a tyranny of the majority, a worker government, that that will get rid of the space for liberty, that it will gradually eat into the different means by which people would differentiate and go their own way. Because if you have the workers taking more and more of the resources of the state and using them for all sorts of redistributive purposes, then that eats into the private pools of resources, which could give rise to a plurality of civil society organizations. Right. So it's a kind of an association of civil society organizations with There being lots and lots of different sites of wealth in the society. So the kind of the equality, it's not that there's a strict equality of of wealth and income. It's that lots and lots of different people in the United States have enough resources to support societies, clubs, local government. It's extremely decentralized. That's not to say that it's egalitarian. In the strict sense of everybody having the same amount but there's an enormously large number of people in the united states who have enough resources to have some level of power base and the country is too large for any one of these people to dominate the whole thing so if you have a situation where there is no set of private aristocrats, no set of private wealthy people who are in position to dominate the whole thing because the whole thing is too big, then the concern becomes that the government will be taken over by the poor and the government will be able to then crush all of these wealthy people. That becomes Tocqueville's concern. Because the wealthy people are not in position to resist the state because they're spread too thin their being spread thin allows them to construct all sorts of different localities, different civil society organizations and clubs. When the central government is weak, when it's still nascent, they're able to start lots of different societies and organizations, and they can make all sorts of different and strange and weird things. But as the central government's power increases, the concern becomes that if that government becomes dominated by the workers, and because there is no class distinction in political rights in the United States or in political status, that can happen, then that government will be much too big and too strong for the rich people who are not sufficiently rich enough to defend themselves to manage. And so as they lose Resources, they will not be able to sustain the civil society organizations that they previously gave rise to. Right? So, in the little local community, before the central government gets big, in that local community, it's the people who have more money who are playing the leading role in structuring the town's organizations. Right? They're starting all the clubs. And if you go to an American town and you join the, the Lions or Kiwanis or whichever of these clubs you you might join the people in these clubs are professional class they're small business owners they're they're the people who have more money right those are the people who start all of the clubs and insofar as ordinary americans engage with local politics they join clubs or they participate in local politics which is dominated by this class of people but that class of people isn't a class in the european sense it has no political rights which the ordinary working Americans don't have. It's numerically much smaller than those ordinary working Americans, and it has less of a financial advantage, per Tocqueville's argument, than those ordinary people. So it's not able to, as the central government gets stronger, resist that central government. So as the central government gets stronger, their domination of the local institutions can be circumvented by the workers participating in the federal institutions and in the state institutions. And the workers' numbers at the federal and state level allow them to overcome these local elites which otherwise uh, conditioned and politically educated Americans through local politics and civil society organizations and clubs, right? So instead of participating in these local units where they receive a political education in how to have respect for other points of view and all of those liberal things, instead of that, these people participate as a big mass group in state and federal politics and use the big institutions of the state to supervene upon those local units and to rob them of their power and strength and to make them irrelevant, and they strip the uh, wealthy people in their communities of the ability to fund and support those kinds of organizations and clubs. Right? This is the thing Tocqueville's worried about. And this is something that I think a lot of people in the post-war era were worried about, including a lot of people who would not think of themselves as right-wing. The thing is, once we... In the 70s and 80s and 90s went in the other direction and we moved away from domination of the state by a working class movement or a coalition in which the working class plays a substantial role right once not to say that that ever obtained that even in the 50s and 60s we had that but we moved much further away from that in the 80s and 90s and 2000s as we move away from that we then get a new proliferation of organizations and clubs and groups belonging to affluent Americans. But these organizations are not mainly local organizations. If you go to an American town, yes, you'll find things like the Lions. Those th- organizations will be operated by professionals and, and small business owners. But the big influential organizations now in the United States are think tanks and uh, big, big political action groups, super PACs, which are run principally by oligarchs, by billionaires. And those billionaires are not super involved in local politics. They're not starting local organizations. They're interfacing directly with the federal government. And so what you instead get in the latter half of the 20th century is a battle for power and influence within federal institutions between the declining worker movement and these resurgent billionaires who in the 60s and 70s, became increasingly aggravated by stagflation, by the erosion of their wealth, by inflation and lack of economic growth and, and higher wages for workers, and f- used a lot of their money to out-compete the worker movement for influence in the state and federal institutions. So instead of having a system where you have these kind of nice, you know, in, in Tocqueville's envisioning, these, these nice Wealthy, but not, not status, not, not uh, ennobled Americans leading their towns in this, in this very nice way. Instead of that, you get a transition to a system in which the state and federal governments are much more important than the localities. The workers initially have a lot of influence in those structures and then gradually the workers lose that influence to a billionaire class, that billionaire class is not embedded in towns or communities. It's transnational and global in nature. Right. So I think that we are Mm. already a couple levels away from what Tocqueville was talking about. Not only have we gone through the period where you have – Political parties that are interested in catering to workers and in transferring resources to workers. And we've now moved far beyond that to a point where we have a resurgent private sector, but a private sector that doesn't look anything like the frontier lawyer or the frontier farm farmer. Of Tocqueville's imagining. In the small town for Tocqueville, it's farmers and lawyers who are the influential people. And these are the people who are doing the work of of civic educating the ordinary American. And these are people who have religious beliefs that come from the old country. We've moved very far away from those people. We also have moved well past the workers actually being able to exercise anything like the tyranny of the majority that Tocqueville was talking about or worried about. And I would submit that they never really obtained that tyranny of the majority. But in the post-war era, a lot of people worried that they had, including the rich and including both critics from the left and right, who worried about the level of conformity of the post-war era. So- Mm. Today, we have a whole different situation where we have private wealth, but it's not at all private wealth that looks Tocquevillean. It's not at all these homely, nice family farmers, country lawyers who are shepherding people through these happy local institutions. That's mostly gone now. And what you have is extremely, extremely rich people trading on these kinds of arguments for the purposes of legitimating a society in which they operate power in a totally decontextualized way, with no loyalty whatsoever to specific communities, specific localities, specific states, or even the country as a whole.
1: Mm. Yeah, and this kind of links to what Tocqueville said in the preface to the Antioch regime, which is, um, well, he first summarizes the, his basic propositions that, quote, In the darkness of the future, three truths may be plainly discerned. The first is that that all the men of our days are driven, sometimes slowly, sometimes violently, by an unknown force toward the destruction of aristocracies. The second is that, among all human societies, those in which there exists and can exist no aristocracy uh, are precisely those in which it will be most difficult to resist, for any length of time, the establishment of despotism. And the third is that that despotisms can never be so injurious as in societies of this nature, for despotism is the form of government which is best adapted to facilitate the development of the vices to which these societies are prone, and naturally encourages the very propensities that are indigenous in their disposition. When men are no longer bound together by caste, class, corporate or family ties, They are only too prone to give their whole thoughts to their private interest and to wrap themselves up in a narrow individuality in which public virtue is stifled. Despotism does not combat this tendency. On the contrary, it renders it irresistible, for it deprives citizens of all common passions, uh, mutual necessities, need of a common understanding, opportunity for combined action. It ripens them to, so to speak, in private life. They have they had a tendency to hold themselves aloof from each other. It isolates them. They look coldly on each other. It freezes their souls. In societies of this stamp, in which there are no fixed landmarks, every man is constantly spurred on by a desire to rise and a fear of falling. And as money, which is the chief mark by which men are classified and divided from one, um, one from the other fluctuates incessantly, passes from hand to hand, alters the rank of individuals, raises families here, lowers them there. Everyone is forced to make constant and desperate efforts to acquire or retain it. Hence, the ruling passions become a desire for wealth at all cost, a taste for business, a love of gain, and a liking for comfort and material pleasures. These passions would have been strong in the absence of despotism. With its aid, they are paramount. And Tocqueville goes on to say that the only thing that can counter this, this trend, this alliance of despotism and, to use a word anachronistically, capitalism, um, is the thing that can counter this for Tocqueville is some kind of political liberty, um, which can... um, He says, quote, liberty alone can free them from money worship and divert them from their petty everyday business cares to teach them and make them feel that there is a country above and beside them. But it does seem to be paradoxical about how this can occur, given that it is precisely those societies which have this kind of drive for equality and for liberty that end up in this kind of despotism
0: right how are you supposed to learn this liberty learn to value it learn to use it in this kind of political theory that's supposed to come from civil society organizations and those organizations are supposed to be started by the genteel lawyers the gentleman farmers these people who are not quite aristocrats but have something of the aristocratic sensibility something of the political maturity in weber's parlance that you might associate with the aristocracy, or with the Christian values that they take from their homeland. And, of course, the problem is all of that that Tocqueville celebrates is precisely what has been going away, is going away, and, of course, would necessarily go away in the United States as the frontier is closed and the authority of the central state is established. And so what you then instead have is a, a, a set of people who are mainly living private lives focused on getting by. And insofar as they engage in politics, they're engaging in politics to struggle over power within the central state. And they're trying to use that power to uh, you know, engage in all sorts of, of from, from Tocqueville's point of view, stultifying activities in which they homogenize huge sections of society and supervene upon localities. So I think what is interesting about Tocqueville is how Tocqueville sets up the advantages of the United States as things that are fleeting and ephemeral and certainly not things which we could reasonably be said to still have. At the same time, uh, th- there is another thread in Tocqueville that we haven't spent as much time on that's to do with with adaptability by uh, getting rid of of uh, people when they become liabilities to the legitimacy of of democracy Uh, a tendency for democracy to be able to by rotating through people avoid having the mistakes of particular individuals impinge upon the legitimacy of democratic institutions And I think that that particular advantage, which democracy has, is the thing which makes it very difficult to get rid of. Anytime it does anything wrong, it is always able to blame the particular set of office holders. And so the system of offices itself tends to be uh, held aloof from that, that criticism. So I think that In a way, it's a more concrete. There's a lot of similarity between Tocqueville and Hegel, because both Tocqueville and Hegel emphasize civil society and these kind of mediating structures. I was about to ask: Is this training people up in freedom? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarity between the two because they do have they both have this emphasis on on uh, mediating structures. Mediating structures. Mm. I mean, for Tocqueville,
1: the judiciary and municipality seem to be central.
0: Yeah. And so the question that comes out of both of those is how do you get the political maturity in Weber's sense so that people, or, or the mores in Tocqueville's sense, so that you will continue to have. Uh, these institutions used in the ways that these liberal theorists want them used, and these institutions preserved in their in their power and, and significance without being totally dominated by the central state's apparatus. And the trouble, as I think we see in Weber's work, is that there isn't really a, a clear liberal answer to that. The liberal political theorists do not really know how to preserve this realm of, of civil society structures. Tocqueville makes it quite clear that the existence of these civil society structures in America is largely accidental and not the purposeful aim of the United States. Although to some degree, things like townships, Tocqueville is quite fond of townships. Those have mm. some level of institutional basis. And but juries, to a very sir. large degree for Tocqueville, yeah, yeah, and juries. But to a very large degree for Tocqueville, these things are kind of accidental consequences of the scale of the country and its frontier quality. And so how do you port that? Similar kind of problem emerges in Germany, uh, as as Weber writes about it, but with problems of political maturity of the rising bourgeoisie, it not having the particular traits or characteristics which Weber associated formally with the aristocracy, questions about how to get civic education to this class so that it subordinates its petty grievances and and personal interests and private interests to the national interest and to the state. That problem is recurrent in liberal political theory of the 19th century. There's an awareness, I think, on the part of all of these theorists that what happened in the French Revolution was a, a terrible disaster. Insofar as the French Revolution is a liberal revolution and these theorists are liberals, they're interested in how the benefits that they were looking to get out of the French Revolution, the liberty and the equality, one or the other or both, depending on the theorist, how those things can be had without the spiraling mess. Yeah. And all of these theorists come back to there has to be some kind of civic education so that people develop the political maturity so that they will appropriately embed in the institutions and be responsible in the way that they use them. All of them go in a different direction from, say, Montesquieu, who wanted institutions that were going to be durable regardless of how virtuous people were, and in which there really was some kind of meaningful class distinction between people who have status and people who have money. These guys want to get away from that class distinction, and they want a society, therefore, which has some level of virtue involved, some level of good behavior or maturity. And it's interesting because you think of Montesquieu as someone who is is very much giving a kind of account of of how modern states work. They have separation of powers. They have checks and balances. They're designed for people who aren't good to each other. But Tocqueville's system was based on there being a class distinction between money and status. And once you get rid of the class distinction between money and status, you then have to bring in virtue or mores To do some of the work, you then have to bring in political maturity, some kind of concept, which is to do with people having positive traits or tendencies or behaviors. And the problem is that liberal political theory has no real concrete way of training people up in this stuff. And insofar as it tries to create ways of training people up in this stuff, either these things are accidental creations of people's liberty and therefore not durable, or it's a deliberate state policy to try to force people to be civically educated. And once it becomes a deliberate state policy, it then becomes a stultifying and conformist thing. The critiques of the Kulturkampf in Germany are critiques of this government effort to culturally educate people so that they would participate in the state in the right kind of way. And these critiques are on the basis that inevitably this turns into a nasty uh, kind of nationalist, jingoist, patriotic project. And you see a similar kind of debate playing out now in the States with the arguments about American public education and the 1619 project and Donald Trump's 1776 project and these questions about how to uh, provide civic education. And the trouble is, anytime you try to answer that question, if you try to answer it positively, it sounds like you are engaged in some kind of despotic propaganda program. And if you don't provide an answer, then the question is, how do people get the mores or the civic virtues or whatever? Uh, And the trouble is, Something like Montesquieu's system might work conceptually. If you have a status and a money class, and therefore one class is expected to have certain political virtues that are are not virtues that they personally have, but which are imposed upon them by the system of honors, they have to act as if they have these virtues to receive the honors. If you have those two classes held separate and distinct, then you can have a moneyed class, which is rancid. And you can have a status class which is pursuing honor and therefore is at least anchored in some way to the state's interests. The trouble, of course, is that you can't hold those two classes apart. Montesquieu could never actually devise a system which would keep them separate because money inevitably works its way into the system and money inevitably becomes politically important. And once money is politically important, it's then very, very difficult to put any kind of break on the decay of political maturity, the decay of various kinds of, of political or civic education or virtue, and you get into this, this same argument over and over, which is we've lost our political virtue, we've lost our civic education, how do we get it back? And there's no answer to this question that's consistent with the liberal emphasis on liberty. No good answer. Yeah, and I guess p-
1: part of the reason why it's... <laughs> Quite hard to find an answer is because of the the separation between these values and institutions. Like the moment equality gets put above liberty or vice versa, there's going to be a push towards the kind of recovery of the repressed value and towards a kind of cycle of values resting on a kind of cycle of um, institutions between. Democracy and despotism, and I, I guess part of this rests on the kind of separation between the centralized character of the modern state, on the one hand, and the kind of more uh, egalitarian tendencies of uh, of democracy. And I guess that these, this separation is kind of formally institutionalized in the American case with the kind of division of powers between uh, legislature, executive and judiciary, uh, with the judiciary, supposedly kind of checking either um, checking either branch. But I guess today we see how that too is quite hard because the judiciary, I mean, the the reason why Tocqueville seems to place so much emphasis on the judiciary is that judges for Tocqueville are kind of quasi aristocratic, impartial spectators who have the kind of, um, that that they might have the the status or the, um, the intellect of some kind of, uh, some kind of, Guardian class, but don't have the kind of wealth and material power that would corrupt, uh, corrupt their
0: judgments. because he's I, imagining yeah. these lawyers as 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 the kind of gentleman lawyers, right? Yeah, the, the yeah. genteel country lawyer types. But you know, Raymond Guess has made this point that lawyers in contemporary society are trained to be mouthpieces for corporations. They are not trained to yeah. be. Independent-minded, you know, this kind of, of, and this is why lawyers have come into such disrepute in recent decades. They're considered to be kind of mercenary, money-oriented uh, corporate actors. They're not thought of as these kind of respectable men of principle who help you operate your local political system. It's still the yeah. case that if you go to some American political you know, county council or city council, there will often be a lawyer there to give advice to the councillors on what they can do and what they can't do and how their rules are supposed to work. And you, know, you can see this image of, of the kind of helper lawyer and, and what might remain of it. But in practice, the most influential lawyers today are not those that sit in city councils or county councils and give advice to the councillors. The influential lawyers work for major corporations and help those corporations and the billionaires who own and run them to influence states at the national level. And so it's interesting, just as, as Tocqueville in Ancient Regime and the Revolution worried about these nobles in France becoming increasingly detached from their local communities, becoming increasingly absorbed with influencing Louis, There's also a concern now about lawyers not being embedded in their local community, but increasingly being concerned with helping corporations influence national government. And in both cases, government is being moved away from that lower level to the centralized position. And alongside that, you get a kind of loss of legitimacy, a tendency to privatize everything and to try to... uh, Keep oneself independent from politics because as politics becomes about the centralized apparatus which is dominating your life, you retreat into this notion of the private individual and try to and retreat into the remaining private institutions like the church and the family to put up a kind of wall around yourself to protect yourself from this increasingly gigantic thing, right? And so what we get is a bunch of, of people who are not able to participate in any kind of collective political organizing because their main in interaction with the political is to try to protect themselves from it because they are operating at a, in a local position. They're not in Washington, D.C. They're not participating in federal government. They don't have access to public officials in any meaningful sense. So their whole interaction with the American political system is to try to keep it away from them. To try to get it to not look at them, to try to get it to not intervene in their affairs, because they have no prospect of influencing how it intervenes if it does intervene. And so that, I think, is something which has afflicted both the left and the right in the United States. And it's why the left is so anarchist in in America. And it's why the right is so libertarian. It's this sense of alienation from the central apparatus.
1: Well, those are the same things, right? And an inability
0: of restoring connection to it. Anarchism and libertarianism, aren't
1: those the same thing?
0: (laughs) They're certainly very similar to one another. I I won't say that there's absolutely no difference. A lot of anarchists have, at least in theory, a a sympathy for workers that many right-wing libertarians don't have. But in practice, it cashes out very similarly, whether you're focusing on the traditional family or the commune as your way of retreating from and protecting yourself from the state, you're motivated by a desire to retreat from and protect yourself from the political. And so... What the world is increasingly divided into those people who are wealthy enough to be able to influence powerful institutions, and everybody else who is terrified of those institutions and trying to hide from them, (laughs) right? And the fact that we we call it you know know, democracy elides that that fact. I think Tocqueville is really helpful in helping helping people see that. This idea, you know, there's some of it in Hegel, there's some of it in Weber, but in the way that Tocqueville talks about the ancient regime and the way the ancient regime fell apart and what it was like experientially to confront the French state as an individual French person who had no meaningful hope of really doing anything with the French state. I always like to use, and I've probably used it before on the pod, but the analogy of the Eye of Sauron as the state in a deracinated society where there's no mediating institutions or structures, the individual is the hobbit, you know, wandering around, hoping that the eye doesn't look at them. Uh, you know, the, the, the state standing there like a tower alone and imposing a dark tower alone and imposing. And if you think about the kind of embedded society Tocqueville's imagining there, a single tower is not so imposing because there are lots of smaller buildings between you and that tower. If you're in a city, you might be able to see a skyscraper, but it's not terrifying because there are lots of different buildings of all sorts of different sizes between you and it. If you went to Chicago and there were no buildings in Chicago except for the Sears Tower, you know, if there were no buildings in New York except for the Empire State Building, suddenly that building would look very, very frightening and inaccessible to you. And I think that's a large part of what has happened. And so a lot of, of people's political engagement is based on fear of the state now rather than an effort to participate in it. And insofar as people do try to participate in politics, it's, it's mainly to wield the state as a kind of power, mainly to wield it rather than to uh, look after anything. And in that sense, the, the state becomes like the ring in Lord of the Rings. It becomes the thing that, that people want to wield but of course to wield it is to become it and it's to become the terrifying monolith so you have people who are trying to protect themselves from it and people who are trying to to wear it to be it but yeah this is the the tragedy of liberalism that in the name of liberty and equality you create something which is even more monolithic even more terrifying than the things which you created it to replace and so in the name of equality you create an incredibly despotic system in the name of liberty you create a system in which nobody's free everybody's dominated by a heavily bureaucratized centralized state and so Mm. in trying to live up to these values you create something which is the antithesis of them that i think is the problem that liberals have been facing that their their position creates a kind of totalitarian system, even though the values which they are espousing are explicitly anti-totalitarian. And that's the problem of the French Revolution and the problem which so many thinkers in the 19th century were explicitly confronting. Part of the trouble in the 20th century is that people have really... uh, We are often dealing with many of those same kinds of problems, but we don't have the vocabulary anymore for them we aren't able to put it in takvilian terms or in weberian terms or in hegelian terms most of the time when people try to talk about these problems th- there's no historical awareness of what came before this kind of state or before this kind of economy or what uh, other alternatives there might be or what other ways of thinking about it there might have been historically for the most part all of this stuff gets naturalized and treated as a as a basic fact and so then whether you are repelled by or you try to capture the state is really a function of your own emotional state and uh, what, it, what your attitude to power is and whether you identify with anti-conformity or you identify with, with a will to power. That's the sad situation we've gotten into in a world that doesn't really understand where it comes from or where it's going. But I digress. At the end of The Lord of the
1: Rings, it's not spoiling uh, too much to say, uh, that uh, <laughs> the ring is destroyed and it's Aragon upon the throne of Minas Tirith, who kind of assumes kingship. And if Hobbiton is kind of like a agricultural capitalist paradise and Mordor is the most kind of tyrannical face of the modern state, then... It seems that in between the two, you've got this kind of, this kind of representative the idea of representative monarchy, a kind of, uh, or perhaps more, maybe a modern update of this would be seeing some kind of democracy mediating between capitalism, uh, the liber- kind of the. the the, the supposed liberty of capitalism and the supposed hierarchy of the modern state. But it it seems that though Tocqueville wants um, democracy to somehow mediate between these things, that democracy itself is meant to be some kind of bridge between despotism and anarchy, Instead, democracy has got caught up in the cycles between the two, and I guess that one reason for this is that the democracy has, kind of like in Lord of the Rings, that, that Gondor is kind of, uh, Minas Tiris is framed as being corrupted, and all these kind of mediating kingdoms are framed as being corrupted by, uh, well, c- corrupted by the things that they're meant to bridge between, and Weakened on the one hand, and kind of made more despotic on the other hand. I guess that I, th- I think a similar thing is happening. Uh, Tocqueville argues with, with 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 democracy that democracy is kind of pulled between these extremes. It's meant to bridge between, uh, and instead of br- bridging between the, them. Over time, it's just become a kind of puppet show or a kind of imitation of the extreme. So democracy itself is divided in the way that we are divided in, in economic competition uh, of you know, so Hobbes pillar: every, every man against every man. Um, and th- this is something which a lot of people um, such as political theorist C. B. McPherson recognize in commercial society as well as, uh, Hobbes's idea of a state of nature, and that this seems to have been transplanted onto democracy, where democracy has become institutionally divided between all the different branches of the state, in order to guard against the modern state. but in guarding against the tyranny of the modern state, democracy has become molded on the anarchy of the market. But this, of course, just produces more tyranny from the modern state in order to manage the effects of the anarchy of the market, both economic and if you look at the, the state-heavy responses to the 2008-2020 uh, you know, um, um, economic crises. Um, and on the other hand, on the kind of cultural effects of market anarchy, this, these kind of culture wars as kind of the, the new masks of... Uh, Class wars, uh, and then there's pu- there's a push for the state to take more of a role in managing those too, in regulating speech, and doing all sorts of things that violate democracy, but in some way try to protect democracy from the things that it's trying to bridge between. So I I I, I guess in the end, democracy has failed to, well, at least partially failed to fulfil. Tocqueville's function of somehow not being either as authoritarian as the, as, as the Hobbesian modern state, nor as anarchical as the modern market, but as somehow a kind of bridge between the, the two. In, 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 instead, democracy has just become, in order to get it away from, Desperatism and tyranny has itself become a kind of anarchy that leads back to tyranny. And so the fear of one pole leads to the other pole. And uh, democracy, therefore, at the moment, um, has, uh, yeah, has failed to strike a mean between these
0: extremes. Yes. Lots of theorists have made an argument for some kind of balance between uh, unity and distinctiveness, and between the despotism of the state and the anarchy of the market. The trouble, of course, is that if you try to cash that out in institutional terms and say, how concretely does this work? The answers you get are not very good. And in they the, make case the case of Tocqueville, the answer yeah. you get, yeah, 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 you you get this kind of accidental localism that, of course, isn't durable. In the case of Montesquieu, you get this Sharp distinction drawn between the class based on honor and the class based on wealth, a distinction which can't hold. In the case of Weber, you get this argument for civic education. But how is it meant to come about? Well, an argument for a charismatic leader. Yeah, mm. None of the answers are very good. None of them are very good. And that it's the failure of 19th century liberalism to solve the problem, which leads to the nastiness and awfulness of the 20th century. And and would, it be, would it be fair to say that it's disunity that is the
1: problem? That it's the the division. But the reason why all these remedies fail is because the remedies are reproducing the malady, which is the original kind of separation between the modern state and the modern market, between politics and economics. And the supposed remedies are more political divisions, division between democracy and judiciary, divisions between all these different branches of state and then divisions between all the kind of different branches of policy and civil society that are kind of contaminating each other, and so it's like we're, it's like the modern world has entered a kind of semi-permanent quarantine, where everyone is in a kind of isolation from each other, and institutions are isolated from each other. But this, of course, is impossible, and so, so, so the kind of the problem inevitably
0: spreads. That's the tyranny totalitarianism problem. If you try to avoid the personal tyranny of particular people or particular institutions, you get the impersonal totalitarianism of large numbers of institutions working together in ways which circumscribe the ability of any particular agent or institution to do anything which deviates from what's gone before. The more you try to avoid tyranny, the more you tend to promote totalitarianism, and the more you try to avoid totalitarianism, the more you tend to promote tyranny. The very powerful individual or the very powerful institution is the answer to the gridlocked network of small, weak institutions, and a gridlocked network of small, weak institutions is the way that you thwart a very powerful single individual or single institution.
1: Right, and that and rests on the Hobbesian Fundamentally, fallacy. we're not yeah.
0: happy. We're not happy with either one because we are not able to be content with the state either pursuing any particular unity because we're not unified. So if the state tries to pursue one particular unity, the rest of us will move to resist, right? Anyone who takes the ring, everyone else is the ring bearer's enemy, right? Uh, and conversely, uh, we're, we're not able to settle in for difference because everybody wants their particular value set or their particular vision for society to be realized. Everybody has a notion of, of what's ideal or of what is divine that they want to see realized in the world. So yeah, a lot of it yeah. comes back to the, the problem with reacting to the Catholic consensus and the collapse thereof, where a lot of people want there to be something like a Catholic consensus again. Either they want that Literally, the Catholic consensus again, or they want something else which plays the role which Catholicism previously played. And the fact that people want to replace Catholicism means we are never content with a patchwork of different values, different things going on. Liberty is not something people are content with because liberty doesn't take seriously the aspirations of particular value sets. And then conversely, those value sets, because they infringe on liberty, aggravate. A lot of people, especially those people who don't share those value sets. So we get cut back and forth between those polls. We are an hour and a half in now. So I think we should wrap up for today. Yeah. I was just gonna say one thing. There we go with a a nice little rundown of of all the different things they're pushing and pulling right now.
1: Would you say that the reason why we go from one poll to the other, from the personal to the impersonal, uh, from devotee from to authority, from politics to economics, from politics to morality, is that these things are have been separated in the modern world and that so long as we suppose these things are separated and so long as they remain, in fact, separated, it's going to be kind of nigh on impossible to balance them.
0: Well, to a large degree, a lot of people want to bring them back together. They want to bring Uh, politics and morality back together by establishing a replacement for the Catholic consensus. That is a way of bringing politics and morality back together. Uh, The thing is that it subordinates the political to the moral. So a lot of people want to bring politics and morality back together, but they want morality in charge. And putting politics in charge of the moral is not a satisfying solution for people who are inspired specifically by the Catholic consensus and by something like medieval politics, whether they realize they're inspired by that or not. That is right. a particular vision of unity between morality and politics that is unworkable today. And no one who proposes a unity really has been able to articulate a unity that goes the other way. And I think even if, if you or I were to go and write up you know, what it would look like to have a unity where politics leads the moral, That whatever it is that we would write up would not at all be satisfying to people who want the moral to lead the political. And so that itself would become another site of disunity. So maybe it's
1: both about bridging the divisions, but also focusing on the right divisions to bridge because you can't bridge all divisions at once. You've got to start somewhere. So finding the right priority of where to begin.
0: Right. But even that, of course, is (laughs) who there's not going to be agreement on what priority to give. So, oh, sure. This is the, the difficulty. You inevitably end up having to coerce people in politics. You inevitably end up having to make people do things they don't want to do. And we feel very insecure about doing that these days. Uh, and then at other times, altogether too comfortable. Yeah, it's the extraordinary. We're not able to. Problem, yeah. yeah. Because again, anything that we try to do, use the state to do, it's so totalizing that it's incredibly terrifying yeah. because no one uses the state in this kind of moderate way the state is yeah. not the kind of structure that is designed to be used the modern state is a, is a unified nation state you know with a national people that the state represents right a real so it's unity not the kind is of state it. yeah. yeah it's trying to be a real unity yeah. But I think in a much thicker sense than Hobbes, because Hobbes has a fractious multitude that is yeah, personated yeah, yeah. by the state. I think to a yeah. large degree, modern states are Schmittian, and they think of themselves as a people with a way of life, with the state representing it, right? Yeah. So that kind of state is, is extremely exclusive when it acts, when it moves, it negates large sections of its own population because it is trying to produce a kind of unity that's fundamentally unsustainable, right? So if you were to try to have unity, it would need to be a kind of moderate unity. But if you have a nation state where the state is representing a united people with a discrete way of life, if you're doing that kind of project, you're not going to be able to use the state in this kind of moderate way. The nation state is not a moderate state. Right. And And, so a uh, lot of the people who are interested in this, I think, are interested in in kind of a a renewed type of federalism or some kind of republicanism, something that harkens back to pre-nation state notions, but... Replacing the nation-state with something else is difficult because the nation-state has this hold on people because it gives people a vehicle for doing a kind of, you know, as Schmidt puts it, political theology. It's a vehicle for replacing the Catholic consensus with some notion of a thick way of life. Right. Anyway, we have we could do a whole different episode on—and on, we I think we have done Schmidt before— uh, yeah, we did do an episode on Schmidt and Religion a while back. I think we had we had Rafe Gibson on that show. If you go back in the back catalog. But for, for now, I think we should wrap up because mm-hmm. we're, we're going on a little while. So thank you guys so much for listening and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Thanks everyone. Bye.